Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Well, as many of you probably know, uh, my wife and I had the wonderful privilege of swimming together on the swim team at Biola University during our time there. It was an amazing four years. Uh, some of our closest friends, fondest memories still come from those four years of swimming and competing with one another. Uh, seriously, some, some amazing memories to look back on. What you probably don't know is that I barely made it onto the team at Biola. I mean, barely. I, I come from a small town, uh, a, a really small high school, small enough to where uh, no sports team at my high school was allowed to make cuts because our, our school was too small. So for high school swim, that means that your coach spends most of their time making sure people aren't drowning instead of focusing on those who are competitively swimming, right? Because that would be much worse. Okay. Uh, but because of this, my stroke technique, my swimming technique was horrible. Uh, not, I don't want to bore you all with the dullness of swimming, but if you knew anything about swimming and you saw me swim, it would make you sick. Okay, it was just bad. It was horrible. Um, but because of this, I, I just craved a coach who would pour into me, right? Mine was too busy lifeguarding instead of coaching. And so I craved a coach who would invest in me. And luckily, throughout my time at Biola, I had lots of coaches, but there was a few who were able to invest in me, pour into me, and my swimming improved uh, a lot in those four years. It wasn't without hard work, though. I'll be honest, there was a lot of moments where I wanted to quit along the way. Um, it felt like I had to relearn how to swim over and over again. But when it was finally done, right, the technique was taught uh, and learned. Uh, my time kept dropping and dropping and dropping and swimming became a joy again. It brought uh, a lot of light to my life, actually. Well, I'm reminded of my journey through swimming when I read our passage this morning, because I think that our faith needs the same kind of coaching. Okay, even if you don't crave it or you don't want it, your walk with the Lord is in dire need of correction and reproof and discipline, and coaching, and training. Without it, we don't know what we don't know. And that's what we're striving to do with this series. We want to offer rebuke. We want to offer correction, and training, and coaching for our walk with the Lord. It's our most important area of our lives. So if you guys can remember, this past few weeks, we've been looking at these letters in the book of Revelation, the words of Jesus to the churches, right? And our passage tells us Jesus is the faithful and true witness Right, no doubt contrasting him with ourselves, but it also says that he is the amen. Right, this means he's the, the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. Right, in other words, he's the seal and stamp on God's word. It also tells us that he's the first of God's creation. I want to take a second and say this is not saying that Jesus was created by God. Rather, the word first here is used in prominence, not in sequence. Meaning, he's the first as in the most important. He's the ruler, the most powerful. Okay, and these are his words. These are Jesus' words, specifically to the church in Laodicea, yet they also apply to us. Right? Scripture says, he who has an ear, hear God's word. In other words, if you're alive, heed his instruction. And that's where we're at today. Right? We come into this letter from Jesus, recorded by John, to the church in Laodicea, with the intent of understanding it and applying it to our own lives. And as we look at this letter to Laodicea and we apply it to ourselves, I want us to start by reminding ourselves that reproof and discipline are always done out of love. So if you guys want to skip down with me to verse 19, we're going to start there. It says, Jesus talking, it says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And I think it's important to start here because we have a culture where reproof, 
discipline, confrontation, those things are not accepted well. They're not received well. They're often not done well, right? But similar to how my coaches poured into me because they love the team and they want to invest in me as an athlete, we reprove and discipline and correct one another out of love as well. And throughout this series, I hope you guys see that this type of reproof and correction is done in three ways. The first would be that it's done from Jesus. Jesus is constantly reproving and disciplining those whom he loves. If you're reading his word often, spending time with Jesus often, you likely are being convicted very often. You should be seeing over and over and over again specific ways in which you're being called to change to become more like Christ. The second way that this is done is through his church. An example of that is this series we're doing right now. Right? You guys know this because you're here, but if you call yourself a Christian, you believe in Jesus, right? You ought to be plugged into a church. We see this in the New Testament over and over again, right? Letters back to churches, praising them when it's necessary, correcting them, teaching them, stepping in, right? And everywhere in between. The church calls us back to live how we ought to live. And that's honestly what we're trying to do right now with this series to the church in Elk Grove, right? We're stepping up as church leaders and saying, hey, check out these churches in the book of Revelation, you know, we're not that different. Once again, it's always done in love, right? It's done because as your pastors and your leaders, we want you to be able to stand before God and for him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But in order for us to get there, sometimes it takes correction. Sometimes it takes a kick in the pants for us to get back on track. And it's not unloving, right? Remember, Jesus says it's because of his love that he does this. The last way that this correction ought to be done is individually. Part of what we're going to talk about is this lukewarm culture in Laodicea, right? And and it comes from this idea of self-sufficiency. But we desperately need the Lord. We also desperately need one another in order to walk in the Lord. And so as I was was reading this and preparing for this, it made me wonder, like, I, I just wonder how many of us have opened ourselves up to true accountability with others in our walk with the Lord. For those of you who have, you know that those relationships wake you up when you need it and they push you towards the Lord. For those of you who haven't, I wonder if that's exactly what we're afraid of or if we've bought into the same lies the Laodiceans that you can be self-sufficient. Either way, we all need and we should long for this type of accountability in all of these ways, right? If we're not calling one another out, if we're not challenging one another in our faith, if we're not pushing back on areas of spiritual lukewarmness, if that's a word, then it's going to be near impossible to grow. Because you see, reproof and discipline, they remind us that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all figured out. It keeps us humble, and they remind us as Christians that we must rely on the Lord daily. And I think it's really easy, right, especially living in California, to convince ourselves that we don't need the Lord. But when we do that, we instantly close ourselves off to anything that God might have to say, as well as closing yourself off to what others may be trying to speak into your life as well. So I want to challenge you as we dive deeper into uh, how we might be similar to the Laodiceans. I want to challenge you to keep your heart and your mind open to hear what God might be trying to say to you today. Because what's, what's vital to understanding our passage is that Jesus's desire through reproof, correction, discipline is our repentance. That's his desire. Read verses 19 to 22 with me. It says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we're in Revelation chapter 3, if I did not say that already. Revelation chapter 3. All right, but this is Jesus saying, he's saying, please, when you hear this, repent. He's saying, look, I'm standing right outside. All you have to do is let me in. It reminds me of the Disney movie Frozen when Anna's standing outside Elsa's door and she's knocking. And she's like, Elsa, are you in there? Right? This is Jesus, right? Christians, are you in there? Right? <laughs> it's not him saying, I'm watching you. I can't wait to condemn you. It's him saying, I love you. Can you hear my voice? Right? Turn away from your sin. Let's eat together. I want to share my throne with you. But first, you have to leave this sin behind, right? Because I made you. I know what's best for you. Right? Because his desires are repentance. Let's take a quick second. I know before we dive in even further and look at what repentance means. So I think we have a pretty, uh, a pretty large misunderstanding of the depth of repentance. We often think of repentance as an apology to the Lord, right? Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry I lied to them. Will you ever forgive me? And don't, don't get me wrong. Like, that's a good start. Hey, but repentance is so much deeper than that. I believe repentance starts with hearing the spirit or the word of God. In other words, repentance starts with being convicted. In our passage today, again, Jesus' end goal is our repentance. And what's been this echoing line throughout our series has been, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Right? This echoing line is that you all need to hear the word of God. You need this correction from the spirit because then you will be able to repent. So it starts with hearing conviction from the Lord, but it doesn't stop there. Repentance is also an active turning away from sin. It's not being satisfied with sinning less. No, it, it's recognizing that when you're sinning, that's causing you to run in the opposite direction of God. So to repent from that sin would be to turn and do a 180 right back in Christ. Right? But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there either. Right? So we have this conviction from the Spirit. And then we have turning away from our sin. But the last step of repentance is returning to an active dependence upon Christ. You see, so often our sin is acting out of our own desires and means. It's trying to provide for ourselves in some way outside of God's plan or design for us. That's why this last part of repentance is so key, right? An active dependence upon Christ. And I know there's a good amount of us in here, myself included, who at times would say, I don't even know where to begin an active dependence upon Christ. But right, that's that third key step in repentance. So we've, we've skipped around a little bit. Okay, so we jump down to verses 19 to 22. Remember Revelation 3, 19 to 22, because it's really important to understand that the reason that Jesus's words are what they are is because he loves his church and he longs to see them repent. So we're going to dive into the rest of this passage, to the rebuke and the correction of Jesus. As we do, I want you to remember that it's with love that these words are given to us with the goal that we would be convicted, turn from our sin, and depend again on Christ. So would you read with me Revelation 3, 15 to 18. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, 
so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I went way past verse 18. That's okay. We're going to stop at verse 18. Um, that's where we're stopping for now. It's good. We'll come back later. Okay. Uh, it's important to remember, Laodicea is a wealthy city. It's a wealthy city. They actually prided themselves on their financial independence and on their wealth. So much so that around the time of 60 AD, there's an earthquake that devastates the region, just devastates Laodicea, okay? And then the Roman government comes along and offers help to rebuild. And then they also offer uh, what we would call a, a large economic impact payment or a stimulus check to Laodicea. And Laodicea refuses all help from the Roman government because they are so prideful in their own riches and wealth. It's one of the things they're famous for. They're famous really for three things. The first was their riches. The second was a textile industry. They, had, they made these beautiful black clothes hey, that were shipped all around. Beautiful textiles. And then the third was actually a world popular eye salve that was like a medicinal rub you could put and it was healing for the eyes. Right now, it's interesting how Jesus then counsels them to buy those same things from him to find true riches. Right? But the thing about Laodicea, maybe their downfall their downfall is that uh, they had really poor water supply, okay? The, all their drinking water actually came from a hot spring in a nearby city. And so by the time it got to them, it was just lukewarm. And this is where Jesus takes right, this image of something that was everyday happenstance for them, would have been really normal for them, and he uses that to make his point with them, right? So that's where this lukewarm water idea comes from. That was what their drinking water was, okay? Uh, I want you to think about it this way, though. Think about uh, how many of you... Um, when you're filling up your water bottle, purposefully search out lukewarm water to put in your water bottle. There's probably, maybe there's one or two of you. It's okay. Okay. I have never met someone until after second service. I have never met someone who says, you know what my favorite water is? My favorite water is that bottle of water that's been sitting in the backseat of my car for three days. Okay. And you pull it out, you drink it. It's not cold at all. It kind of burns going down. Okay, but, it, but it's good. It's not hot enough to like brew coffee or tea or anything. That's my favorite water. I've now only met one person who says that that's their favorite water. Okay, why? Because it's, it's disgusting. Okay, cold water is good. Cold water is refreshing. Hot water can be used for lots of things. Medicinal purposes, you could brew hot drinks with it. But lukewarm water, right, is disgusting and it's useless. Okay, but this is what Jesus is saying about the church of Laodicea. God says the church of Laodicea is disgusting and useless. Those are strong words. Hey, those are strong words. And I think the question maybe that's going in our mind is like, okay, well, if we're supposed to think about how we're similar to Laodicea, right? I don't want to be disgusting. I don't want to be useless. So what does it mean to be lukewarm in our faith? I think that's the question we should ask. And I've heard it put like this. The church of Laodicea was too hot to be cold and too cold to be hot. In other words, they had too much of the world to be happy in Christ, yet too much of Christ to be happy in the world. I think it's when we try to be these two things that we end up in the middle, right? When Christians also long to be of the world, we end up with this lukewarm faith. We end up with a faith that thinks we got enough Jesus to be good for the week and that that's all we need. Instead of taking an all-in approach to Jesus, a lukewarm faith causes us to take a just enough approach to Jesus. And I hate to be the one to break this to you. There is no just enough approach to Jesus, 
There is no Sunday mornings are for God, but the rest of the week is mine. There is no Jesus is great around church and my church friends, but when I'm at home or in my neighborhood, man, that's my space. But this is how I see this lukewarmness play out here in Elk Grove and specifically here at LifePoint. If any of you were here last week, I hope Derek's sermon woke you up as it did me, right? That we might be thriving in some ways. We might have this reputation for being alive, but there's ways in which we are dead. And I believe it's because we're lukewarm in our faith. It's because we've bought into this idea of worldly comfort. It's because we only want to give Jesus some of our life and not all of it. That the kind of car you drive, where you live, where your kids go to school, what neighborhood you don't live in, the neighbors you talk to, the people from church you don't talk to, all of that contributes to a spiritual lukewarm, lukewarmth, lukewarmthness. We're going to make up words today. Okay. What well, we talked earlier right, about reproof and discipline, holding one another accountable. And here's my thought, right? If, if you're like me, as I'm talking about lukewarm faith, there's probably somebody that's come to mind. Maybe it's a couple of people who are like, man, that, that person is lukewarm. Right. I'm hoping today, after today, if it's needed, you are one of those people who come to your mind about living in lukewarm faith. But if, if somebody else has come to your mind who's living in lukewarm faith, I want to be so bold as to say that likely, likely you don't love them enough or you're too lukewarm yourself to pick up the phone and call them and rebuke them today. Why? Probably because we don't like words like rebuke. That's an old church word that makes us uncomfortable. Okay, but also because it's outside of our comfort zone. Because we think we should be more self-sufficient than that. And we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But we have got to wake up and see that Jesus thinks that lukewarm Christianity is disgusting and useless. Jesus thinks that a Christianity that does not depend on him constantly, one that simply thinks they have enough Jesus to be all good, that makes him want to vomit. I don't know about you, I would much rather have a harder conversation with a friend on the giving or the receiving end than be vomited out by Jesus himself. Another commentator said something to the effect of the hardest person to impact for Christ, the hardest person to impact for Christ is the one who thinks they have enough Jesus to believe you could never be talking to them. Newsflash, I'm talking to everyone here. And if you're in here and you're thinking you have enough Jesus to where I could never be talking to you, it's not true. We all have areas of lukewarmness in our faith. We all have bought into the world in plenty of ways. Ways that make us feel nice, safe. Ways that make us feel comfortable. Ways that we like to keep Jesus out of so we can have our cake and eat it too. I want to share with you all a quote that I believe describes a lukewarm Christian really well. It's going to be up on the screen. You guys can read along with me. It's a little bit long, okay? But if you're wondering like, well, how does this actually play out? What does it look like to be a lukewarm Christian? Read along with me. So now, lukewarm professor, what do worldlings see in you? They see a man who says he's going to heaven, but is only traveling at a snail's pace. He professes to believe that there's a hell, yet he has tearless eyes. And he never seeks to snatch souls from going down into the pit. They see before him one who has to deal with eternal realities, yet he is but half awake. One who professes to have passed through a transformation so mysterious and wonderful that there must be, if it is true, 
a vast change in the outward life as the result of it. Yet they see him as much like themselves as can be. He may be morally consistent in his general behavior, but they see no energy in his religious character. I mean, wow, when I first read that, the conviction was overwhelming. Hey, raise your hand if you believe you're going to heaven. Most people in here, good. You can put your hands down. If you're going to heaven, how many of you think you're traveling at a snail's pace to get there? You don't have to raise your hand. But if you believe you're going to heaven, how many of you are traveling at a snail's pace to get there? Right? How many of us believe that there's a hell, but we have tearless eyes and we never share our faith with anyone? Not even the people we have relationships with, like family or neighbors. If you read this quote and you think it doesn't apply to you, man, I would beg of you to rethink that. Because our faith in Christ doesn't allow for a lukewarm life. It doesn't allow for a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in throughout your week. It only allows for an all-in, dependent upon Jesus, radical, disciple-making, Christ-seeking, self-forsaking, striving after what you know to be true. However, I'm left with one more question. Okay, so I'm like, I'm getting the lukewarm thing, but the question I'm left with is, well, what made the church in Laodicea lukewarm? What makes us lukewarm? The answer our passage gives us today is that it is self-sufficiency that makes us lukewarm. It is self-sufficiency that is disgusting to God. See, the church in Laodicea, they thought they had it made. They were rich, right? They were well off. They were prosperous. But their self-sufficiency cost them. It cost them their dependence upon Christ. See, once again, it's easy to forget living here in California, your dependence upon Christ. All right? If you live here in Elk Grove, which I'm guessing most of us do, but if you live here in California truthfully, you're prospering. It might not feel like that, and you might not be satisfied. But compared to the rest of the states and the rest of the world, if you live in California, you're doing real well, according to the world standards. But I think it's this sort of doing well that can lull us to sleep. It causes us to forget that God's a part of the equation or that we need him at all for anything. I was talking with a youth student a couple of weeks ago, and we're talking about prayer. That's what we've been talking in our 10 a.m. Sunday Bible study. We've been talking about prayer. And this student was more honest with me than I've seen a student be about prayer in a long time. When asked about her faith, or her prayer life, sorry, when asked about her prayer life, she said the main reason she finds prayer difficult is because she comes from a well-off family. And she knows that whatever she wants or needs, her parents will be able to provide for her. So it seems weird to pray for something I know I'm going to get anyways. And you know what happened when she shared that? Every student at that table went around and said, I feel the exact same way. What an example, right, of how our self-sufficiency can pull us away from the Lord. And this is not to knock this student's faith or relationship with the Lord. In fact, she had recognized this problem and was trying to deal with it, trying to combat it, right? That's why this conversation was happening. But how many of you can see in your life where your self-sufficiency pulls you away from the Lord? How it breaks his heart. Your self-sufficiency, Jesus says it reminds him of lukewarm water, which makes him want to vomit. Why? Because you need Jesus. 
And not in like the sassy way you say to a friend who makes a bad joke, like, you need Jesus, right? Not like that. You actually need him. You actually depend on him. Our passage says, again, Laodicea thought they were rich. They thought they were prosperous. They thought they didn't need anything. What did Jesus say they were? Blind, poor, wretched, pitiable, and naked. Man, if that is not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. Right? Because not only does our self-sufficiency disgust God, it actually makes us useless for his kingdom. When you depend on yourself, or rather you think that you don't depend on God, you become useless for his kingdom because you forget how much other people need God as well. And so you don't share him with anyone. You don't call out your friends and your family when they're living lukewarmly. And you certainly are not taking yourself to the Lord in prayer daily, straining after every second that you could spend with him. So self-sufficiency misguides us, right? It makes us blind. It tells us that we got here on our own. Right? Maybe you're someone who's built a business from nothing, right? Or you came here from another country or you worked hard to put yourself through school. A self-sufficient mindset would say, you did it. You accomplished it. Jesus says, in that moment, you're blind. That's the Laodiceans, right? We did it. We don't need anything. We're rich. Jesus, once again, you're poor. You're blind. You're miserable. Self-sufficiency misguides us. It's really important to ask yourself, in what ways am I living self-sufficiently that I need to give back to the Lord? Because the end goal of all of this is repentance, right? And that requires an active dependence upon Christ. Lastly, self-sufficiency leads you to compromise. It compromises your faith because your faith says, Christianity says, the Bible says, I'm weak and in desperate need of a savior. Self-sufficiency says, I can do it on my own. That's, that's a compromise, right? That compromises your faith. It also makes you fond of things that need to be given to the Lord, right? The Laodiceans, I can't really blame them, but they became fond of drinking water, right? It led them to compromise cultures around them, right? It led them to compromise with cultures who worshiped other gods, who worshiped Caesar. And so Laodicea becomes this hub of, of pagan worship and Caesar worship, right? I, I believe our self-sufficiency does the exact same thing in our life. It leads us to worship other things, and it leads us to compromise in our faith. And maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your own work ethic. Or maybe it just causes you to be a little bit looser on your convictions for the sake of making that sale or that connection, right? Maybe it lets you take that sin just a little bit too far because, well, you've grown fond of what it gives you more than you've grown fond of what it means to walk with the Lord and live in his presence. Well, as we said at the beginning of our time together, again, the end goal of this is repentance, right? Jesus's desire is that we would be able to recognize those areas where we are not all in, where we are lukewarm. We'd be able to recognize where our self-sufficiency has pulled us away from Jesus and how that disgusts him and how we can turn from it, leave it behind, focus on Christ and depend on him again. Walk into a relationship that not only is dependent upon Christ, but also pulls us out of a lukewarm state, which is a disgusting and useless place to be. So how do we do it? Right, again, again, we have to remember that our repentance is Jesus' desire. 
In fact, he actually longs for us to be zealous in our repentance, right? It's not like Jesus is sitting here like, you're disgusting, you're useless, and uh, yeah, you should probably repent of that, right? No, he says, he says, look, here's these things I'm telling you. So be zealous in repentance, right? And it starts with hearing that conviction, right? If you're out there and you're feeling convicted of, of lukewarm Christianity, right? Know this, that Jesus is waiting for you. He's waiting for you to leave your sin behind. He's waiting for you uh, to, to leave your self-sufficiency behind and to turn to him. He's already said he, he wants to share his throne with you, right? But the repentance has got to be real. We can't turn from our sin and, and, and repent of our sin and have a prayer life that's still non-existent. You can't turn from your sin, right? Repent of your sin and, and never be convicted when you read the Bible. You can't turn from your sin and then still want to have it on the side of the relationship with the Lord. Right? The repentance has got to be real and it's got to be full. And so this is, this is my challenge, right? My call, my challenge to the church in Elk Grove. Hey, do not settle for lukewarm life. Do not settle for lukewarm faith. But wake up and go all in with Jesus. He's waiting for you. He's knocking, right? He's anticipating your turn to him and he wants to go all in with you. Stop settling for this worldly and twisted version of Christianity where you forget your need of Christ and then you pat yourself on the back for showing up on Sunday. Jesus says that's useless and it's disgusting. Repent of your sin. Repent and run all into Jesus. A trust that he wants to carry you, that he will provide for you. He wants to open your eyes and give you sight. He longs to clothe you because he loves you and he longs for your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we know that conviction, confrontation can be difficult to hear. God, we know that the enemy is present right now trying to convince us that lukewarm faith is how we ought to live. God, I pray you would move your power against this attack right now. Lord, give us ears to hear your word. God, we ask that you would convict us and guide us. God, we long for your love that reproves us. God, I ask that you would draw each of us closer to you, that we would recognize our own dependence upon you. Lord, that in our repentance, we would not only turn from our sin, God, but that we would return to depending on you, a relationship with you that moves us out of a lukewarm faith. I just ask that you fill this room and bless the rest of the time that we have together, Lord. Would you draw us closer to you, God? We long for you. It's in your powerful name that we pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.